I bet you weren't expecting to hear my voice, but welcome back to the Analytics FC podcast. My name is Joel, aka Messy Seconds, aka Wicked Salomon for Live in the Flesh. Please let me assure you that I have not hijacked the Analytics FC podcast, but instead I've, well, signed a long-term contract following the recent departures of stars such as Torvaney, Gregory and Warville. I'm sure any old coconut could have found someone better in the numbers, but in the immortal words of Robbie Keane, it's a dream come true. With me today, I have Bobby Gardner and Jeremy Steele, if you'd like to introduce yourselves. Hey, I'm Bobby. I've been writing about football stats for about a year now. I came into it mainly through Ted Nutson and Statsbomb. Uh, about a year ago, I set up Analytics FC with Tom Warville, Sam Gregory, and Ben Torvany, who have now all moved into full-time jobs. Um, and that's completely amicable, and we're really happy to see people get jobs within the industry, and hopefully that continues. Um, to keep Analytics FC going forwards, uh, Jeremy Steele has come in as managing director. He's got experience and expertise within the football industry, and he's our real football man. And more recently, we've recruited Joel to kick on and try and expand operations on both the media and consulting sides. Uh, and I'm uh, Jeremy Steele, so I'm the new MD at Analytics FC. I've uh, been working in football for 13 years now, so I think that may qualify me as a football man. Um, and in no particular <laughs> order, I've been coaching at Portsmouth, Stoke City, Brentford uh, and Chelsea. And my last role was as a first-team opposition scout at West Ham uh, under Tony Henry and Rory Campbell. Um, my first initiation into the whole analytics world was at Brentford, where, uh, as everyone knows, the training ground has graphs, numbers, and stats printed over every wall, chair, bib, cone, and mannequin. Um, but, uh, yeah, and I really do think people think that the, the impression they get from, uh, from Brentford is that the training ground's teeming with spotty nerds running around showing coaches and scouts graphs and spreadsheets, but it's really not like that. Um, and to be honest, uh, I think every club uh, has data integrated into what they do in some way shape or form i think brentford have just uh made that an, an open an open secret um anyway i digress uh, my honest opinion about football on six is that it can help clubs win games develop players and make money so of course who wouldn't want to be part of a movement like that so here i am who are you trying to call a spotty nerd <laughs> none of you guys of course, of course. <laughs> yeah it's a bit offensive um, so I, I think we all collectively want this podcast to be fortnightly, uh, an attempt to learn about football analytically, placing numbers into their correct footballing context uh, with guests from hopefully around the world of football. Speaking of football and tenuous segues, let's get into questions from Twitter, where the first one we have is from a certain Tom Warville. Is Andre, are you worth the £20.5 million transfer fee? Bobby, I think you want to answer this. I do, and it comes from a little bit of disagreement between me and Paul Riley, who's another one within the analytics community. Um, Paul said that if he wasn't able to find someone better than Andre Ayew for £20 million, he would write a letter to the fans of the club and resign. And so I think it's a little bit hyperbolic to say that. I say a little bit. I think it's really hyperbolic in the context of Andre Ayew. And I think if we're looking at West Ham, we have to start first in the tactical lens. How do West Ham play this differently to Swansea? They, they cross a lot more. They have, they're likely to have much more of a target man presence this year with Andy Carroll still being their top striker, although Caleri's coming in. On the left-hand side, they're going to have Payet, who's a brilliant playmaker and a sustainably brilliant playmaker for the last three to four seasons, has been having amazing key pass and through ball numbers. Um, and so I think it's how do you complement that? And I think if they're thinking Payet's goals, how many of them came from set pieces, how many of them are basically unrepeatable. How do we balance that on the other side? And the thing that's amazing about Andre Ayew is he can play on the wing, but he acts like a shadow striker. He's very often at the back post. 
the Swansea last year it was Jefferson Montero with his one-trick pony stuff where he beats the right back and then gets a cross in. And more often than not, weirdly, it wasn't Baffertin B. Gomez there, it was Andre Ayew there. And I think when Ayew has three years left on his contract at the point of the move, he'd just come off a season where he scored 12 Premier League goals and obviously all the hype that comes with that. I really don't think that 20.5 mil for him is unjustified in any way from the point of view of West Ham. Do you like Swansea, Bobby? I do a little bit, yeah. <laughs> I think you've also got to look at what they could get because, you know, the, the reports were, were pretty clear. They've, they've chased a number of attacking players and couldn't get, uh, couldn't get the majority of them. Michi, obviously, the, the biggest name. Um, Lacazette being another one. And uh, so I think, okay, slightly different position, but in terms of attacking players, they've, they've really tried to push the boat out and spend some money. Um, so, it's not through lack of trying. I think uh, I think A probably is is what they could get at the time. Yeah, um, I, I'm uh, I, I'm slightly convinced by Bobby's um, tactical suitability point. Uh, I wonder who the other names that Paul Riley had in mind were. Who are the options from presumably not in the Premier League uh, who could go to West Ham for twenty million instead? I think West Ham have been reported to have bid for. Gezal, who plays for Lyon, Algerian right-winger, who is basically Mahrez light. Um, but I think even he would be a really different player because his assists to goals ratio is roughly equal. He's much more of a uh, like Payet sort of player in that he can do both. And so I think the interesting thing with Ayu that Bilic also mentioned is that he's seen him play at striker. He played briefly at striker for Swansea when Gomez was left out in the wilderness. And I just think it's a it's incredibly hyperbolic to say that there's no justification for the 20.5 million. I think if you're looking at it through the lens of West Ham and how they play and how IU might fit into that, it's actually a really good fit. I know he got injured on the first day of the season for reportedly four months, and so that's going to tint all of our views on this a little bit. But I still think it was a smart signing at the point of signing, and I was really sad about it as a Swansea fan because I think he's underrated. Fair enough. Um, I'm always uh, slightly concerned and willing to look at other options from other leagues whenever a Premier League sign sign anyone for more than 5 million, 10 million, 20 million. Um, but when a, when a fit exists, when in the Premier League you are um, so short-termist uh, and you'd really rather something works now and it's relatively low risk, even with a high fee, um, yeah, seems to make a deal of sense to me. All right, if we don't have anything more to say on that, then let's talk about Bournemouth for no particular reason other than that we got lots of tweets about it and no tweets uh, regarding pretty much any other Premier League club. We got tweets from Mo, from Ravi and from Owain asking about Bournemouth's summer, particularly why they should pay £15 for Jordan Ibe with a buyback clause. I'll open it up. Yeah, I'll take that one. Um, I mean, look, I've seen Jordan Ibe play since he was sort of 14, 15 years old when he was at Wickham. This is a player with a lot of potential. Um, okay, 15 million, it's a it's a fair whack, but there's a, a buyback clause there. Liverpool fans seem to think they've got the better end of the deal because of the buyback. Klopp seems to be making out in the press as if that buyback isn't going to be a hell of a lot more than the 15 mil that they've paid. But okay, if it's 20 mil or 25 mil, it's still, it's still a lot to get a player back. So it's not, you know, it's not the equivalent of a loan. Uh, put it that way. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, he's got 
He's got good numbers from last season for a young player. You know, you look at his output compared to, say, uh, Matt Ritchie, who they've lost. They haven't lost um, a hell of a lot in that sense. He's slightly down on on, on assists per 90, he's slightly down on, on goals, but, you know, massively up on, on dribbles. So if Howe wants a ball carrier, um, then maybe Jordan Ibe's the man and maybe he can help him to, to, to develop. I think for both clubs, it's probably a decent move. Um, I think Bournemouth are getting a, a pretty decent young player uh, with potential and Liverpool you know, have got themselves into a situation where they can get him back if he really does develop. So uh, pretty good all round, probably. But the the potential point is to some extent, to, to like a small extent nullified by the buyback thing, right? Like if we have a distribution of the possible outcomes that Jordan Ibe could be at Bournemouth, right? So maybe he could be like really, really crap. Uh, and then you could sell him for five million or two million in a few years time. Maybe the average Jordan Ibe at Bournemouth looks like reasonably good and then maybe a really really good Jordan Ibe um, leaves in his mid-20s for a, a 40 million fee or I don't know something crazy with the buyback clause it's a very crude way of looking at it but you are cutting off all of the best options and so suddenly the average option where Liverpool don't buy him back looks quite a lot worse um I'm concerned about Jordan Ibe, numbers-wise and, and otherwise. I don't know what the buyback looks like, and we're not privy to that, but I am a little bit concerned about it. Yeah, I think, you, you, yeah, you're making the assumption that he sort of, they buy him back next season or the season after, because if they get two good seasons out of him with really high productivity, then it's probably worth it. I see what you're saying, though. If If he has a really good year next year and then they lose him, then it kind of negates the... The, the potential uh, aspect of, of Jordan I. But yeah, yeah, I, I can see why it might, there might be a little bit more of a, um, a positive edge on, on the transfer from Liverpool's point of view, but I, I still think Bournemouth will get something out of it. Well, I'm, I'm also not sure what he produces anyway. They're like even, even disregarding that. I think he hasn't had enough minutes to be able to, to show that. I think his... Yeah, as you say, his actual end product isn't there yet. But like, I haven't had enough on. minutes to show that. But, I mean, Bournemouth aren't bidding 15 million for me. Uh, yeah, okay, slightly different. <laughs> but, yeah. But, there, but yeah, there might also be evidence of Jordan Ibe that doesn't exist to Premier League viewers that that does to Eddie Howe, right? Like Jeremy's seen Jordan Ibe since he was 15. Jeremy may have seen more 15-year-old to 19-year-old progressions than the rest of us have. Um, and so, how many more has Eddie Howe seen? How how much under-21 footage can Eddie Howe get of Jordan Ibe. And so I just think it's it's a little bit base to look at this just on the Premier League. I would agree that there's value that you could get outside of the Premier League, where you could probably get something that's a much safer bet than Jordan Ibe. But thinking about Eddie Howe, thinking about why he loves British players, have any of us thought about the fact that maybe Eddie Howe can only do what Eddie Howe can do, which is make players play better than they should play, with players that he can speak to, with players who have English as a first language? which I think would be quite an interesting question. Is that why he buys British players? Uh, uh, I, I feel like that argument's like a little bit tenuous. The, uh... It's definitely a, a little bit spurious, but at the same time, if you listen to Eddie Howe, I listen to one of the Graham Hunter podcasts, he's obsessed with the psychological side of the game, he's, which we're all, we're all skeptical about inherently being on this podcast, but he is obsessed with the man management, communicative side of the game. To a level where, I mean, you wouldn't necessarily be able to have that interaction between the new Southampton manager and, and Matt Target. But if, even if we're spuriously sceptical of that, and Eddie Howe isn't, 
that could be why he buys British players. And if you allow for the fact that he only wants to buy British players, I don't think Jordan Ives that bad. Basically. Even if he only wants to buy British players, or or let's expand that a little bit to like homegrown players generally and players who speak like uh, the most fluent English you could possibly get, which extends it to like a large proportion of Dutch players. Um, like okay, so maybe you can argue he's like an Eddie Howe local maximum. Uh, but even within just the bounds of British players and English first language players, I'm still not sure that Jordan Ives that guy at 15 million plus a buyback clause. Well, who is that guy then? <laughs> you've, you've put me on the spot without preparation. Um, I don't know, but if I... Um... Well, yeah, it's, it's obviously an unfair question. <laughs> Thanks but for it's that. Just that. I don't think that there's a huge range of of young British talent that you could pick up on, particularly on the wings. And I think that that shows a little bit when people are paying what they pay for Andros Townsend regularly. And I, I still think that Andros Townsend could be a good player, but he's one of those players that has to be coached out of things that he does. Maybe Jordan Ibe is one of those where he just needs to be coached out of things that he does at the end. And we don't, we don't really know how much that actually happens at the, at the management level. Jeremy has a lot more experience in that than us. But I just think it's not that bad. I agree that the the buyback clause takes off a lot of the potential gains of the transfer. I just don't think it, it should be vilified as much as, say, like the Balassi transfer, which I think is genuinely really, really bad <laughs> at that close. Well, yeah, I think I think you've got players like Townsend and Balassi who have consistently fallen prey to the same bad habits over and over and over and over again. With Jordan I, we've only really seen that for a very short period of time. So any bad habits that he's got, there are going to be coaches that think they can coach uh, players out of that. I think... Eddie Howe probably be one of those. Um, I was actually on my A license with him. A very, very intelligent coach. Very good with players. Very, very able to to motivate. I can imagine players really do uh, react well to the way to his style of of man management. Um, so maybe he thinks he's he's the guy. I mean, you look at someone like uh, let, let's say a player like Sturridge when he went in at Liverpool. Um, people were questioning whether he was a, a young player that could that could produce the numbers that that he did, but you know I, I think a similar similar coaching there has helped him to to uh, to, to end up being the player that he is. So I, I think maybe look, it might be a long shot, but I think I might be in the right place at the moment. I think he's probably um, with the right coach um, to see whether he can he can make it. If he doesn't, then he's probably only got himself to blame. But I think uh, I think both Bournemouth and Liverpool have got a good deal out of this. With the right coach, absolutely. I th- I'm not sure that there could be a better coach than Eddie Howe from the Jaws and I perspective. Um, on, on Sturridge, I've got to disagree. Uh, his quite basic numbers uh, were pretty impressive at, um, before Liverpool at Chelsea and City. I'm, uh, I'm going to be sceptical. Uh, I'm warmed by your confidence, but uh, it's not quite convincing me like, the, like it did for you. Okay. The, the other thing I would say is that uh, with, with all the players who are coming back in at Bournemouth, they're, they're my tip to be the surprise of the season. And by surprise, I don't mean what Leicester did last year in terms of winning the league. <laughs> but I, I think they'll, they'll be far better than 16th because you look at players like Callum Wilson um, coming back. I think he was on, uh, I think I've got the numbers in front of me here. So he was on 0.47 non-penalty goals per 90. So even if he can, that's before he got injured. So even if he can um, reproduce anywhere close to that, then they're going to be, you know, a lot more productive going forward. Obviously, Gradle coming back from injury, Aki coming in. And one really, really underrated uh, signing is um, Lewis Cook. I know a lot of teams are after Lewis Cook in central midfield, and he's an extremely capable, still young player, but he's, you know, his, his output's pr- pretty good even for his age now. So 
Um, so it'll be interesting to see how he develops as well. So it's a, it's not a bad side, Bournemouth. Not a bad side at all. I agree that Bournemouth are, are, were a very good side last season, um, and that Callum Wilson coming back is a big deal when he's a very good player. Uh, <laughs> I'd have to be dickishly sceptical again um, in that I think the... I think the range of outcomes for Bournemouth is quite... Well, for all teams it is at the beginning of the year, but but I think it's quite wide this year. If you are saying they'll get much better, you're not only saying that Wilson comes into the side and therefore they get better, which I agree with, but also that what happened last season, where Eddie Howe is coaching like a League One defence to Premier League standard, happens again this year. And like, maybe that will happen. And it looks like Eddie was a genuinely good manager and it happened last season. And there isn't a significant amount of reason to doubt that other than the fact that like stuff happens. Um, and last season might not be the best guide to all of those structural factors other than the injuries staying the same this year. Yeah. Yeah. But that's my, that's my point is stuff happens last year and that's Gradle and Callum Wilson out for the, pretty much the majority of the season yep. they still end up staying in the league at 16th so it's almost like two two new signings for the two extra new signings from on top of the guys they brought in um so you hope it should have an impact but um but yeah i'm i'm optimistic actually, about performance i think under kaylee's expected goals difference or something they they were like 12th in the league so they might have even actually performed a little bit better than we give them credit for last season i think with bournemouth the, the one thing that i would like to point out is their striker spending is really weird so Callum Wilson got injured, and then they signed Benikafobi for ten million, Lewis Graben for like eight million, and then they've also signed a French nineteen-year-old, I think, from Le Havre for five million or something like that. So my question to Bournemouth as an entity wouldn't be why are you spending this money on Jordan Ibe? It would be why are you spending that money on strikers rather than your defence? Which is a fair question. Why? Well, I think as as you've mentioned, it's not. To be fair, though, I was going to say it's not it's not a great defence, but to be fair, it's just an unknown defence. So you're saying that he's coached those players to be Premier League standard, even though they're potentially not. Well, may- maybe they are. Maybe they were in the wrong league to begin with when they got promoted. So potentially, <laughs> potentially, he's not adding anything extra to those players. Those players were always um, at that level, um, and potentially doesn't need to improve them, but. Um, but yeah, no, for me, I'd, I'd be adding to the defence. That would be the area that, that I think they need more work. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very, very willing to believe that. I'm very willing to believe the idea that uh, defenders who are currently in the Championship and League One and perhaps even lower um, can, because they have the individual attributes, be coached into looking much better than they look in their lower leagues right now. Um, and that systems, particularly in defence, matter a huge, huge amount. Uh, it's just if you're predicting that in like betting terms, um, then I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit frightened about betting on Bournemouth. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think I basically agree with both of you, except on Jordan. I. That's okay. We can disagree. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the affirmation. Um, so if we can move on to Bournemouth, uh, to the league as a, a slightly bigger picture, is it worth asking who you guys think will win the league and who will go down? Yeah. So I'll go first because I know that Joel in particular is going to disagree with me. I'm going to go with Chelsea. <laughs> I'm going to go with Chelsea because I don't want to go for Manchester City. But also because I think if you look at Leicester as a one-season blip last season and you expect them to go back to more normal trends, you basically have to think the same about Chelsea. Chelsea are a team that have challenged for the title regularly recently. They've made big upgrades. Conte is a good manager upgrade. Uh, I think it was Michael Cayley that wrote a piece about how he... Um, took over Juventus and led one of the biggest 
performance boosts for year on year in one team um, for anyone that we have on record. They've signed N'Golo Kante, who we know is an elite level DM slash transition center mid. Um, Michi Batshuayi is as good a striker as you could have signed in the window last year for anything less than like 60 mil. They've got Diego Costa coming back, who I think we've all underrated because he was banned the whole time. And then there's the little matter of Eden Hazard. And if Eden Hazard plays anywhere like he played last game for the whole season, which he, he can't maybe to, to quite that level, but if he plays anywhere near consistently where he was two seasons ago, they're challenging for that title, and I refuse to doubt that. Who gets relegated? I'm going to go with Hull because they've signed literally no one. Burnley because they've signed almost no one. And Crystal Palace because I would really like to see Alan Pardew get relegated. <laughs> okay. I think I agree with you on Holt. Uh, I think this is the year West Brom go down. I think this is the year Pulis finally, Ooh. finally falls prey. I'd like to see that even more than Pardew, to be honest. <laughs> I just and don't then, believe it can happen. And I, I think Sunderland, the third team, will go. Um, and then up top, I think I can't see beyond Man City. I really can't. Um, I know you don't want to, you don't want to throw Man City in, there, but I, I really can't see anywhere in terms of players. In terms of manager, in terms of uh, um, line of thought, I just think they're miles ahead. All right, so it's all on me. Um, season predictions for the league are very inefficient, so I don't want to say anything set in stone, and I want to talk in terms of uh, probability so that I can blame me being wrong on, <laughs> on freak accidents, etc. Later, um, I agree with Bobby on Holland Burnley going down. Uh, I think there's probably like a two-thirds-ish chance of each of them going down, so like a 50% chance of both of them going down. And then the others, uh, there are a ton of teams, and I really couldn't tell you. Um, I think Sutherland's not a dreadful shout. I don't think West Brom is a dreadful shout. Uh, I don't think the Pardew team is a bad shout. Middlesbrough, you don't know. You expect them to be um, probably the best of those of those championship teams to come up, but that maybe not. It's quite difficult to predict. Um, Watford were really, really bad in the second half of last year. Um, <laughs> even, even dare I say it, Swansea, even though they've been uh, very consistent for a number of years, uh, might be drawn into that battle. So I don't know with regards to third. Um, I'll go Holborn-Lee and uh, Watford just because uh, since Leicester last season, end of season trends seem to be uh, the new black. In terms of title winners, I... I don't um I don't think the Leicester analogy holds because we we don't expect Leicester to go back to being the level of like 16th place in the league right like we expect them to be like the 7th best or the you know the 6th best 8th best team in the league this year uh and also with Chelsea they had a big big drop off in in the second half of that title winning season they weren't by miles the best team in the league. Uh, and then they dropped to like a dramatic low. Do we think that they're going to go all the way back up? Well, like the structural factors, I agree, have all changed for the better. Like Conte is a fantastic manager. They have a very talented playing squad. Um, signings look reasonable, etc., etc. But if you're trying to predict right now who wins the league, just because you can see a very clear path to how all of those structural factors could be fixed, I think is a, uh, is a, different ball game to predicting them first there must be a reason why they were so low last season right so it's a bit like when united dropped when Moyes took over after ferguson there's a reason that they're down there so however much structural change it's still going to take time to get back to where they were unless you believe that that was a totally one-off season where they were just a little bit like 
Leicester in a way that there was it was just unpredictable in that sense. That's kind of where I stand right now. Um, my personal theory is one that I've seen a lot of people say, which is that Chelsea took their performance in Harting Drugs at the wrong time last season. Um, <laughs> I don't actually think that. I don't. Think that. Um, they did have a weird preseason. They've talked about that, and I think it was. A little bit the way I view Leicester is less like, look, there's this really one random thing that explains everything and more just a confounding set of events where you can explain some of them. Like for Leicester, you can explain the fact that a lot of the teams around them that would normally challenge for the title had really weird off-seasons or crumbled at the last minute. But then there's a lot of things about Leicester you can't explain. There's a lot of things about Chelsea we just don't know. I know that Ted Knutson has said that Eden Hazard's performance might be because his wife had a baby and it was keeping him up all year and there i mean that could be plausible right we have no idea that's the problem but i just think it's a little bit unfair to look at chelsea and say like look there might have been this unsolvable problem from last season because i think that's just as plausible as there being a very solvable problem that someone like antonio conte will solve well then i agree with you i agree with jeremy that we the problem is right now uh I'm not willing to put money on whether it is major structural issues or whether it's a blip. Um, and I get that those structural issues have all like sort of probably been fixed, um, but you don't know the, the period of time that takes. If it takes a period of time to what extent the structural issues have been fixed, what the structural issues actually were. Um, so I'm a little bit scared. I'm going to have to go for City as well. Um, I... Uh, I, you know, I, I don't think they're probably going to win the league. I, I think putting them at uh, 25%, 30%, 40% even uh, makes sense. But as far as teams go, when you've got uh, a playing squad that good, plus Guardiola, it's it's difficult to see. I think people are already underrating Arsenal uh, to win the league. After one yeah, game, yeah. when they were playing half of a second string side, they went from like, what, like, 15% likelihood of winning the league to like 8% overnight, which is uh, is very much so not right to me. I mean, they were quite close to getting a draw or a win. Like, they weren't that far from it, and they were playing a much, much worse team than they normally play against the Liverpool side who are, like, getting progressively better and better. I think that's I think that's fair. I think too often... I say too often Arsenal, Arsenal get, get written off, but probably rightly so, but they... <laughs> They they finish second. There's no you can't argue with that. They are you know, and no one expects Leicester to perform to the same level. So, is it are we just saying that Arsenal can't get over the line and win a league, or are we saying that their you know their their team was that bad that they can't you know reproduce what they did last season? It seems odd to me that no one's talking about Arsenal and everyone's very negative about about the Arsenal squad. That same team, and especially if maybe Cazorla's back should be able to perform to a level where it challenges for the title. And everyone's writing them off as if they haven't spent any money and therefore can't keep up with the others around them. I find it quite odd. It's a very odd uh, narrative, I think. I think there's a more interesting question here, which is, which of the top teams, say six or five, which do you think can't challenge for the title? Because even United, I know I'm, there's a huge precursor there where I'm saying even United even though this is Manchester United, you know, one of the biggest clubs of all time, they could challenge for the title with Mourinho and Ibra and the upgrades that they've made so Arsenal, I think they could challenge for the title Tottenham, I think they could challenge for the title City, I think so, Chelsea, I think so, United, I think so, and then you know, just for the sake of argument, let's throw in Leicester because they're the defending and feasibly, you could have five maybe in a really weird world where Leicester do this twice, six teams competing for the title and so, yeah, I think 
Joel, if we're modeling the probability distribution, this is as uncertain as I can possibly be at the start of the Premier League season. Would you count Liverpool out? I think I I really like the Liverpool team. I really like the recruitments, particularly Sadio Mane. Um, and I've been saying that for a few weeks, and it's not just scoreboard journalism, but I haven't been saying it <laughs> on podcasts, so I can't prove that. But I, I don't think they could challenge for the title. I don't know why. I don't really have any like huge reason to say that. I just think that I would love to see them do a 13-14, but then if they do a 13-14, you've got six, maybe seven teams that could be challenging for the title. But I think that's right. I just mean that... Um... I just mean that I think Arsenal are underrated. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. Yeah. (laughs) In a way that they usually aren't. Yeah, I I also think there's a there's an air of of negativity around uh, around the club and around Wenger, which I don't think helps. I mean, I went to the Emirates a couple of times last year, and it is really negative. There are certain pockets of of fans who are just. You know they'll, they'll boo the team at any any opportunity if anything's going wrong, and it, that can't it can't help. But potentially that that might be a, a factor for for them unless they can turn things around or Wenger can turn things around. Because you know one game like the Liverpool game and the fans turn and it's it's tough for a for a team and a manager to get out of that kind of kind of slump. And Arsenal aren't very good at getting out of slumps. So where do you stand on Wenger? My own personal view is I think he's great, but that's that's just my own personal view. I, I don't think I don't think the majority of of Arsenal fans think, I, I, not the majority necessarily, but I think there's a there's a large minority who who have changed their mind about him. And I think only spending big money is going to change their view. And personally, I think that's a really it's a really odd thing to say. Spending money seems almost like a um, a, a proxy for making progress. Mm. Actually, Arsenal have made progress year on year without or most years without spending big money. Like the big thing a few years ago was, oh, we need a new goalkeeper, we need a new goalkeeper. Okay, fine. He spends big money on check. Did it make any difference to their ability to get over the line last year? They're in exactly the same position as they were when Chesney and Fabianski were there. So I think sometimes, I, don't, I think going for that big name isn't necessarily the, the, the right thing to do, although it would get a lot of fans off fingers back. It's odd that if he won this season, it would almost completely validate him. When what yeah. Wenger's been saying the whole time that he's at Arsenal is, look, I want to build a sustainable club, a sustainable model for the future, which I think as a football fan, even if you think that he might have failed at that, which I think would be really hard to argue, but that's exactly what you want, right? Like you look at Tony Zia going into Aston Villa and all of their fans are really happy right now because he's spending unsustainable amounts of money. He's signing ridiculous amounts of players and he's announcing it on Twitter and the Villa fans are really, really, really happy about that, generally speaking. And I think that that makes no sense. And it says something about the, I don't want to say consumer mentality of, of football fans right now, because I'm a culprit of that as well. Like when Swansea weren't signing players, I was sitting there thinking like, oh God, what will I do? Checking BBC gossip page constantly. We all do it. But it says something about how we view the game, that that's like almost the benchmark that we hold managers to, especially when Wenger is not doing anything that we don't expect from him. He's always just said, I'll spend big money if I can get supreme value for it. And I think the, the good point that was raised about that on the double pivot last week, I think, was that maybe he should have, rather than spending 40 mil on an Urzel every year, or when he thinks that's suitable, he should buy three to four gambles. And I think that's the only real criticism you could raise of Wenger, that maybe his transfer policy could be a little bit different, but I would never say that he should have been spending like exponentially more I think you can rightly criticise not signing a striker this year. Yeah, I think I mean, so, but that, that's not necessarily spending more, right? 
Because, like, I think that you don't need to replace Giroud in terms of you don't need a 50 million Alvaro Morata. Because I think Giroud is... Uh, the funny thing about Giroud is you get some Arsenal fans saying, like, Giroud's underrated because we overrate goals. But even if you look at only goals, Giroud is good. And so I think that you bring in a striker to come underneath him, maybe you do a Michi Batshuayi to Diego Costa. Maybe. But I don't see why maybe you should have signed like a 50 million striker just to appease everyone. Well, I mean, I fly that Giroud flag higher than I think, uh, <laughs> than I think the vast majority of people do. <laughs> um, but they do stylistically need something very different. Like they really do need a player who can run onto the end of through balls, who will give them a different option in different games. And also it's like good as Giroud is and his score contribution last year was genuinely good. And stylistically, he is a very, very good fit for them um, as someone who can create dangerous plays from out front and hold the ball for, for more technically gifted, creative players, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Um, But he is 29. Uh, the strikers are possibly available in players like Icardi and Lacazette, and maybe there were other players like Mitch who could have uh, who could have come earlier in the summer. I I'm almost tempted to go back on my word from last year, which I was I was really really confident about, and I'm still confident about, which is that Arsenal shouldn't have signed a striker last year because the options weren't really there; they didn't really exist. Um, but the Premier League money that has come in this year means that it would have made sense if you are a long-term viewing coach like Arsene Wenger in a job that only Arsene Wenger has where he can look that long-term. The thing that made sense would have been to invest before the Premier League money comes in when you know the Premier League money is coming in and when you have the money to do it ahead of time without taking out ridiculous loans, etc. I I think... If it's not a mistake that he's not signing anyone now for a large fee, I think it really is a big mistake that he did not gamble on uh, two young strikers previously. Um, Welbeck was presumably that guy, right? Like, he's a very good, underrated, young English 23-year-old forward when he comes. Um, I think they, I think he could have done more than that. I think Beng was in the position too, and in hindsight, he should have done. I think yeah. right now they should sign Wilfred Boney. <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> not just because he needs a home and I love him, but because if you're saying that Giroud's tremendously good at holder play, bringing other players into the game, which he is, the player that I would go to for also being good at that is obviously Wilfred Boney. But then on top of that, Wilfred Boney, what he could do was play one-twos and make a run-on, which is something you don't often see from Giroud. You very often get the holder play or the near-post run, but not so much hold-up play and then a run. That's what he and could so, do, but I'm not sure he's, that's what he's doing recently. Wilfred Boney? Yeah. It's hard to evaluate his time at City because on, on a purely number basis, he's doing exactly what he did at Swansea. He's doing it even better. He's getting more shots in the box for 90s, touching the ball just the same amount. He's scoring at roughly the same amount. But he didn't really ever get like a significant first place run the team and it's so hard to evaluate especially strikers on the basis of that and it's the same with Benteke like we've just seen that Crystal Palace as we're doing this podcast have agreed to deal with Benteke and I know that 30 million might seem a lot for that but I think the flop relative to actually what he did it's not really a flop it's just tactical unsuitability really 
Yeah, which 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 makes sense. The, the the other thing I'd say is people are talking about spending big money on Lacazette. You're talking about a player that couldn't get into the French squad. Giroud's kept him out of the French squad, um, and so therefore, what what are you buying him for? You're you're buying a, a backup for huge money because uh, Arsenal only play with one centre forward. So the idea that you know bringing Lacazette in gives you something else, well, clearly the the French coach didn't think he was better. Um, you know, well, I, think, I think if you buy Lacazette, it makes sense, but you have to change your whole system to do it because Lacazette's not going to play anything like Giroud. So yeah. I get a bit confused when people say Arsenal should buy X striker and X striker's completely different to Giroud because the team is built around him. It. It's how the system works. And it's a system that last season challenged for the title in a way that we all a little bit artificially underrate, even though they finished second, as you've mentioned, just because they're Arsenal. But if they're looking for a striker that can do the similar hold-up play stuff, can be a warm body because Welbeck and, well, Walcott's fit right now, but how long is that going to last? They're all going to be injured at some point because it's Arsenal. Then, yeah, I would, I would nominate Wilfred Burney. But that's the, my the, point, is that they shouldn't be looking for a stylistic fit. Right. So okay. you, would, you would augment the Arsenal system? No, I'm saying that there are certain times when you need someone who is able to run through, and Giroud is never going to be that guy. And at 29 years old, he, I mean, he's, he's, he's not even going to be able to do what he could do before as well. Yes, I would want someone really different. I hear what you're saying about buying for 50 million for someone who's potentially going to be a backup and Lacazette was maybe not like the best winger in the world when he played there before he was moved up front um so maybe you're you're looking at a Draxler instead or a player like that fine um but a different kind of forward I think is quite it is needed I think pot- potentially the best signing Arsenal could make and I don't want to sound like like Raymond Verheyen here <laughs> but but essentially they get too many injuries during the season the best signing they could make is potentially a different strength and conditioning department, although I'm sure the strength and conditioning department is trying its best to reduce those injuries and change training methods and whatever else. But it's not it's not a coincidence that for the last seven, eight, nine seasons they get the same long term injuries over and over and over again. They either sign the wrong players or their training methodology is is poor, for want of a better term. Um, it, it you know, it's it's not a coincidence those players over and over again and I think if they changed that and kept a squad that was fit rather than struggling along with 11 players who 11 or 12 players and they look like they haven't got strength and depth whereas they actually have if you look at the squad each year it's just half of them are, are in the treatment room I think that would be a, a, a tremendous way of of, uh, of increasing their, their chances of winning the league Alright so if we can stop babbling on about um, Arsenal in the Premier League I think you two want to talk about Premier League transfer prices Yeah so I basically want to engage with the idea that the Premier League's gone insane. And something that I found really interesting is Paul Tompkins on the Tompkins Times. Um, he has a thing, I think it's called TPI, Transfer Price Index. And it looks at the price of average Premier League players season by season. So it's a little bit like how inflation is calculated by economists. So you take a basket of goods. In this case, it's players like Jordan Ibe and you weight their prices year on year to see the relative inflation. And he has some really interesting findings. So from 2013 to the end of last season, the average price of a Premier League player has doubled. And the more interesting thing is that spending has risen roughly in line with TV money. And we'll have the visualizations come out with this podcast that shows this, but it's it's really not been that extreme. And if you look at median player prices, which is something that we've done, it's even less extreme then. So I think it's not so much that the Premier League's gone insane, I think is acting relatively rationally, 
but it's a case of the value of Premier League players is exponentially decreasing just because people are thinking, oh, I want to buy a player with Premier League experience or I only want a British player. And so the value that you're getting from other leagues, even if there's a premium on buying as a Premier League club or there's a premium on wages as buying as a Premier League club, the value there is what's what people are really trying to refer to when they say, how's the Premier League going to say? I think like that you can get Hakim Ziyech or however you pronounce his name for 12 million euros right now and Jordan Ibe cost 15 million pounds. They might both be worth that in their own individual markets, but the fact is they overlap. And so the Premier League hasn't gone insane, but the value in the Premier League is ever decreasing. Interesting. It, it means that there's even more incentive to buy a board, right? Because the differential yeah, just, I think so. has just gone crazy. The differential has gone crazy. It has. And when clubs like... I don't want to say clubs like Leicester because they won the league, but it is surprising that they held on to Vardy and Mahrez. Or it lo- at least it looks like they've held on to Mahrez too. Um, and it's surprising that a year ago Everton can be like, no, we'll wait for more for John Stones. That's, that's weird. And so you've got this... Premier League clubs are stronger in that they can hold on to their players. They're stronger in that they can buy players from abroad more easily. And so I think that they're not taking advantage of that as well as they should be, but um, the prices themselves, apart from Velasti, which was insane, <laughs> haven't done that insane. Well, a lot of the Everton deals are... Uh, I mean, holding on to John Stones is, is weird, not just because of, of TV money. So I, I, I spoke to a couple of guys in the Bundesliga, and they were saying that, um, that all this TV money uh, that's coming into the English game, they're rubbing their hands together because they know that the windfall is going to end up coming back into probably their division or you know, potentially into the into the French league how does how does that kind of strengthening of uh, other countries coffers affect uh, in- English and potentially German sides or French sides uh, in the in the Champions League do you think well it's quite interesting right because you've got a bit of a like globalized market here where if German clubs are really clever and they sell their talent to the Premier League and then buy talent more efficiently from the Premier League they have a really sustainable model there because they can buy young talent and sell it to the Premier League and then a year later just replace it and beat English clubs in the Champions League if they're buying better than them. It's a little bit spurious, but the idea that European clubs are more intelligent in recruitment than the Premier League isn't something that's even slightly controversial, is it? Like, look at Sevilla as an example of that. And finally, before we go, uh, Bobby, I think you wanted to talk about your uh, packing article a little bit and packing more generally. Some of you may have read my article on Stats Bob, which was basically just asking the question, is packing, which is a new metric particularly hyped in Germany and after the Euros, a valuable upgrade on event data? Event data being the X and Y coordinates of things like passes and shots and dribbles that we get from Opta. And what I found was you could explain an awful lot of the variation in packing metrics with really simple stuff like successful dribbles and forward passes explain like 70% of uh, players' average packing per 90, which was the amount of players it takes out of the game. The more specific one's impact, which is how many defenders are taken out. Um, And you could explain, I think, roughly 50% of that with just dribbles and passes inside the box per 90. Um, and so I think it's just, if you're looking for metrics that can quantify players to a better level than, say, like assists or key passes, you can do better than packing if you have event data. I don't want to say that packing is useless. I don't think that it is. If you're a club, it will all depend on your prices and what you actually want to do with that information because 
packing, as Jeremy will go on to say, is really useful from a coaching point of view because it's so intuitive. But I was just very skeptical about it being the future of football analytics, which is what it was genuinely called by some people. Yeah, I mean, from from my point of view as a as a coach, I, uh, like you say, intuitively it makes it makes sense. You're getting a a number that tells you how well a team's moving the ball forward, breaking lines. If you look at the list of players um, who score highly on either playing those passes or receiving those passes in between the lines, it looks it looks pretty good. But I think. Just reading your article, Bob, you've got quite you know big skepticism over whether that can explain some of the things that that the metric is trying to explain. I think it's it looks like it's useful, um, but I think what you were trying to say was that it's not potentially as useful as it as it makes out. So yeah, just explain that a bit more because from a coaching point of view, it looks looks great. Looks like a, a very useful um, useful metric for essentially breaking lines. Yeah, well, I think I think the thing is that. In event data, it's really hard to categorically say, like, look, this pass took out X number of players. But when you're looking, which is what you'll have to do at a recruitment level, is you're looking at a player over the past, like, two seasons or something like that. And if you've got that many data points and you're looking at breaking lines, there's probably, like, cheat ways to do that in event data because when a player's passing forward, if they're playing through balls, if you've got a centre-back like Jerome Boateng or the pass that Bartra did for Dortmund the other day that I saw as a video on Twitter... Those amazing passes are going to show up in other metrics. They're going to show up more easily um, than having to code this whole new thing. Like the big thing about packing is that you could do it really, really easily with positional data. With positional data, you could, I think, uh, it was Tom Lawrence said it's it's twenty lines of SQL basically. But packing, as it's being done now, is being manually coded. Like people are sitting there and going, like this pass took out this many players. And to me, that makes no sense if we're already coding event data. And so I think it's that they said that Leverkusen and Dortmund are buying it. And I would presume that Leverkusen and Dortmund already have event data. If those analysts understand what they're doing with event data, they can be looking for stuff like packing or taking players out or breaking lines in more intelligent ways. If they have positional data, packing could be just the very beginning of some really, really insightful looks into player passing, player decision-making, to a level that would completely eliminate packing in the very first place. So I, it's, it's just kind of, I don't really see it as an upgrade or an insightful addition, but I, I know that people disagree, and I, I really do get that it's intuitive. It's just that I feel like if you explain to a coach why forward passes can explain packing so well, they might not value packing as much, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, cool. So it looks like that's it. Thank you very much uh, to Jeremy and Bobby for joining us. Um, thank you very much for you for listening. Please follow Analytics FC on Twitter, where we'll be posting more of the blog stuff and, and graphics throughout the week, and obviously more of these podcasts. We're very excited to have some great guests on uh, over the next few fortnights and months, including people like Rory Campbell um, at West Ham. And I guess we'll see you for the next podcast. <laughs>